Didn't they do a fine job? Let me give them a hand, huh? appreciate all their hard work. Lots of extra evenings and Saturday morning practices. And we are the beneficiaries of all of that hard work. So thank you, choir and instrumentalists. As I said earlier, we are thrilled for you to be here together with us this morning as our guests. This is, without a doubt, the most significant day in the Christian faith. This is it. This is the culmination of what the Christian faith is all about. And we are gathered here this morning to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We celebrate not just the fact of His resurrection, but it is the meaning of that event. Just what it means For mankind. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead is without serious objection by any thoughtful person. It is a fact that is well documented. Eyewitnesses of the first century are very, very clear about the reality that the tomb is empty. The Apostle Paul A Jew of the first century, a man of tremendous education and intellectual prowess. No friend of the church in its early years as he himself persecuted it. But later, when he became persuaded of the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and its significance, that persecutor became the church's most able defender and missionary church planter. He wrote himself an account of the resurrection evidences in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Listen, Paul says that Christ appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Paul says there were witnesses all over the place that you could ask, and they would establish the reality of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is not dead, he is alive. Luke an ancient historian and Greek physician, carefully investigated the evidences, interviewing those eyewitnesses there in the first century and composing his own historical narrative, recounts the following for us of the events that occurred on that resurrection evening when those eleven frightened disciples were huddled in a room hidden away for fear of the Jewish authorities, that that which had befallen Christ might befall them. And he writes, while they were telling these things, Christ Himself stood in their midst. They were startled and frightened. 
and thought they were seeing a spirit. And Jesus said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still could not believe it for joy and marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and he ate it before them. Christ is alive. He is not but a spirit or a phantom or a figure of people's imagination, a product of mass illusion. He is alive. But it is the meaning of His resurrection, beloved, that is the significance It is the meaning of His resurrection that has changed the lives of people down through the centuries. It is the meaning of the resurrection that has changed my life. This morning what I want to do is open the Scriptures with you and spend some time exploring together the meaning of this incredible historic event. Open your Bibles, please. To 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you do not have a Bible with you this morning, we have Bibles available to you in the Purax in front of you. Take one of those Bibles out and open it to page 1152. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 17. You're going to need your Bibles this morning, beloved, because we're going to be skimming around in them and pulling together some Bible verses, some passages that will help us explore the meaning. The passage that we will be focused on is here in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 17 and running through verse 20. And in this short section, we will find three startling contrasts that demonstrate the centrality of Christ's resurrection to all the issues of life so that you might turn to Him in faith. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter around A.D. 55. He wrote to a young church located in Corinth, Greece. That is the southern part of the country of Greece. The church had become confused with regard to the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and its central place in the Christian faith. As part of Paul's explanation, and really this whole chapter 15, and it's a lengthy chapter, is really given over to the discussion of the issue of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it means. And as Paul is explaining to this young church the significance of this event, he uses a common rhetorical advice or a device here, and that is that he momentarily grants to them the premise that Christ has not been raised from the dead, that indeed He is still in the tomb. Granting them that hypothetical premise, He then explores what would be the reality of that event. If Christ had not been raised, what would that mean for the church? Actually, there are six consequences. It begins over in verse 13. This rhetorical argument. We are not going to explore all six of those this morning for the sake of time. We are going to focus on the last three that begin here in verse 17. 
The beginning part of verse 20, Paul makes a statement, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. You know, at that point, he is ceasing to grant them that hypothetical premise. But verses 17, 18, 19 are what he's doing, this rhetorical device. And what I want to do this morning is I want to look at these verses together and I want to combine that with verse 20 and his statement, but Christ has been raised and, and establish contrasts for you. We'll explore the, the hypothetical if he has not been raised and I want to explore with you the alternative with the reality that he has been raised and what that means. So I've got three contrasts that I want to look at with you out of these verses. Let me just read the text for you to get us going here in verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, Paul says. That establishes the contrast I want to look at with you this morning. The first contrast is here in verse 17, and it really establishes the foundation for the others. Paul says to them, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless or futile. That is, if Christ is still in the tomb, your faith is will do you no good. It is a futile thing. It is a worthless thing. It is empty. It is vain. Why? Why would that make our faith worthless, empty, and vain? The answer is the second part of the verse 17. Because you are still in your sins. That's the answer. If Christ is still in the grave, then you are still in your sins, the Apostle Paul is telling us. And that takes us right to the core of the issue. Sin. What is it? What is sin? It is fundamentally an unwillingness to live in open dependence upon your Creator. If we were to boil it all down, beloved, sin is fundamentally an unwillingness to live in open dependence upon your Creator. It typically manifests itself in a desire to have things your own way, regardless of the consequences. It's a desire to be your own boss, to be your own God. At its core, that's what sin is. Where does it come from? Where does sin come from? For that, we need to turn all the way back to the beginning. So, go with me to Genesis chapter 2. If you are using those few Bibles, it's going to take you all the way back to page 2. We're going back to Genesis, back to the beginning. Because if we are going to really get an understanding of what sin is and why it is so devastating and why it is that every single one of us is infected with this deadly disease, we need to go all the way back to Genesis. Beginning in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 2. 
Here in Genesis 2, God creating Adam and Eve, those first humans, and placing them in a garden. He gives them a task. He gives them a job to do. They are operating or living at this time in perfect communion with their Creator. There is nothing that is interfering, no barriers between them and God, their Creator. And so He gives them this task beginning in verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and He put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Literally, dying you will die. God puts them in this perfect place. He gives them a task to do. And He says, you may eat of anything that I have provided. All the bounty that is available before you. But there is one thing you must not do. Just one thing you must not do. And in the day you do it, you will die. Well, it didn't take long, according to the text, (coughs) for that perfect couple placed in that perfect place to decide that they wanted to check it out for themselves. That they were unwilling to live in dependence upon their Creator. That they wanted to examine the evidence for themselves. That they wanted to make decisions like God makes decisions. That is, they wanted to be like God. God. So they took of the fruit of the tree and they ate. And immediately at that moment, they began to die. Their relationship with God was changed. Guilt began to flow into their hearts. Fear of their Creator now replaced the fellowship that once exists. Chapter 3, verse 8 speaks of this. When they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, the man and and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. Guilt now replaced fellowship. Do you ever wonder why it is that you feel guilty? Where does it come from? Why is it that when you do something that you know to be wrong, you begin to feel guilt? Beloved, it is the manifestation of sin. And in fact, it is God's good gift to us. Like touching a hot stove, the pain causes you to retract your hand. Guilt is to drive you from your sin and to God. That perfect fellowship is now frustrated by sin And guilt. And it brings consequences to these first people. God said to them, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Dying you will die. He reiterates that again to the man and down in verse 17. To Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have taken from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken for your dust. And to dust you shall return. 
Gentlemen, you ever wonder why uh, you can't get satisfaction at your job? Ever wonder why it frustrates you? The answer is right here in this text. It is an inevitable consequence of sin. Of the breaking of the fellowship between you and your Creator. It is sin brings consequences. Verse 24, the end of the chapter. God drove the man out of the garden. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. The broken fellowship becomes obvious to all to see when God expels that first couple from the garden. The fellowship that existed at creation when they could walk together in the cool of the day, they could commune one with another, has now been severed. They've been expelled from paradise. Guilt, consequences, death. Chapter 5, Genesis. Just a page or two to the right. God said to the man, in the day you eat it, you shall surely die. Dying, you will die. So all the days of Adam, verse 5, chapter 5. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And Seth, that is his son, lived 105 years. And he became the father of Enosh. Then Seth lived 807 years after he became the father of Enosh. And he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Verse 11, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Verse 14, so all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. Verse 17, Mahalalel, and he died. Verse 20, Jared, and he died. The scholars say this is like walking through a graveyard and reading one headstone after another. Like hammer blows falling. We are impressed with the reality that God was not kidding back there in the garden. That as the Apostle Paul says over in Romans, that just as through sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Not just Adam died. His children, his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren, one after another died. If there's one thing that I know for sure about every single person in this room, you all have an appointment with the undertaker. You are all in the process of dying. Dying, you shall die. Death, beloved, is essentially the separation from God. Separation from His goodness. Physical death is but a picture and a down payment on the reality of death, which is the spiritual separation from God. Sin is inherited. It is inherited to us. Thus, we all die. But it's not only an inherited disease. It has a volitional element to it. It is a volitional element, meaning it involves your choice, your will. 
You sin because you are sinners. If you'll turn to page 78 in those few Bibles, those of you with your others, turn to Exodus chapter 20. Where does sin come from? It's an inheritance. You can thank your parents. And your children will thank you. It's unavoidable. It is unavoidable. But lest you think it's all because of what they did back there, there is a volitional element to it as well. You sin because you choose to sin. Exodus chapter 20, page 78. We have what is commonly called the Ten Commandments. These are a set of the laws of God given to His people after He had, had delivered them from bondage in the land of Egypt. And so He gave them not ten suggestions, but ten laws by which to live. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other God besides Me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate Me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love Me and keep My commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth the sea and all that is in them. And he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The law of God given to his people. But they couldn't keep it. And you can't keep it either. We have a nursery over here and there are many, many small children over there today. They're the cutest little kids wandering around, some of them crawling, some able to stand and totter around, right? Others a little more mobile, cute. You look into their cherub little faces and you see such innocence. Or do you? <laughs> Think with me on this. Over in the nursery today, if it's like every other week, a small child will take 
a toy from the hand of another small child. That child will then reach out and bash the other child over the head. Right? In the process, those two young, innocent children will violate the Tenth Commandment against coveting. They will violate the Eighth Commandment against stealing. They will violate the Sixth Commandment against murder because, do not be mistaken, there is murder in those little eyes. Right? Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, if you are angry with someone, you have murdered them already in your heart. They will break the first commandment, prohibiting idolatry. For they will be seeking their pleasure not in God their Creator, but in the baubles of this creation. Beloved, if a young child can be guilty of sin, of the violation of a number of the commandments and thus guilty of it all, then you and I are guilty as well. Then you and I are guilty just as well. Therefore, we need a Savior. That young child needs a Savior. All mankind need a Savior. Jesus is that Savior. Through His death and resurrection, He provides the forgiveness for our sin. How? How does He bring it about? And for that, we need a big biblical word called atonement. Through atonement. What is atonement? It is to be reconciled with a party with whom there is a breach or offense by the removal of our guilt. Simply put, atonement is the removal of our guilt that then reestablishes the relationship between us, the guilty party, and God, the offended one. It is through Atonement, that we are made right with God. You'll slip a little further to your right, page 122 in those pew Bibles. For those of you who are got your Bibles, it's to a Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16. We are now in the heart of the Old Testament. The part that is so, we read it and we go, what in the world is going on there? We arrive at Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The annual celebration in which Israel commemorates their reconciliation to God. And indeed, in which the nation is reconciled to God. This Day of Atonement is... There's much involved, but for our sake this morning, we're going to focus on just one aspect. And that is that there are two goats. The high priest is to gather to himself two goats. He is to slaughter one of those goats and to sprinkle its blood around on the altar. He is to then place his hands upon the head of the other goat and confess upon that goat 
the sin of the people for the past year. And then he is to release that goat into the wilderness, symbolically taking away the guilt of the people's sins for another year. Verse 15. Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil. And do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. The mercy seat was the top of the box, the Ark of the Covenant, in which the two stone tablets containing the Ten Commandments, the law of the nation, were housed. Symbolically, what's going on here is that God looks down upon the law and the infraction of the people for another year. And the blood being sprinkled there satisfies him that the guilt of the people has now been extinguished. Slip over to chapter 17, verse 11. I'll just show you verse 11. Chapter 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Go back to chapter 16. Blood has to be shed, the law says. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. Someone or something must die. Here in the Old Testament, it's the goat. Verse 16, chapter 16, And he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And thus he shall do for the tent of meeting which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. When he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out. that he make, make atonement for himself and for all his household and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and the blood of the goat, and he shall put it on the horns of the altar and on all its sides. And with his finger he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it seven times and consecrate it. From the impurities of the sons of Israel he shall consecrate it. When he finishes atoning for the holy place in the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall offer the live goat. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of the man who stands in readiness. And the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat into the wilderness. The wages of sin is death. The just penalty of God for those who violate His law is death. And so God in His grace and in His mercy provided that an innocent substitute could die in the people's place. That innocent substitute, beloved, for hundreds and hundreds of years was an animal. Was a goat. Was a bull. Year in and year out, the same ritual over and over again. Death, blood, and a reminder that you have violated your Creator. That you are guilty of sin and that you must bring a sacrifice of atonement. 
Every single year they came and every single year in the most vivid fashion they were reminded of their own guilt. But an innocent one has come and died once and for all. The Bible says that that one is Jesus Christ. He is the atonement. He is the ransom on behalf of His people. He is the one who has died once and for all. He says it Himself in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give His life a ransom for many. How do you know? How do you know that Jesus' death put an end to the need for the sacrifice of goats? Nobody brought a goat with them this morning. That tells me you must be persuaded it's not necessary any longer. How do we know? How do we know that He really did atone for the sin of His people as He said He would? How do you know? How do you know He didn't just die like any other ordinary man? The answer is the resurrection. It is the resurrection. Jesus made extraordinary claims about His ability to forgive sin and to grant everlasting life to those who would by faith embrace Him as their Lord and Savior. And He tied the validity of those claims to His ability to be alive and carry them out. Nobody can expect anything from a dead man. Not legitimately. If somebody is dead... They're not going to be around to do anything for you. Jesus says, I will do this for you because I live. John 10, verses 17 and 18. I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it again. John 11, verse 25. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. John 14, verse 19, Because I live, you shall live also. John 6, verse 40, Everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life. And I will raise Him up in the last day. Beloved, if Christ is still in the ground, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, the Apostle Paul says. It is empty. It is vain. You are still in your sin. But if Christ has been raised, then we can be certain His promises are true. And He has removed our guilt by atoning for our sin. That takes us to our second contrast. Turning back all the way to 1 Corinthians 15 again. Page 1152. <coughs> Our second contrast in verse 18 is separation versus communion. Verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Let me ask you a question. Where will you go when you die? You have an appointment with the undertaker. Where will you go when you die? Where have your loved ones gone? 
What has happened to them? Another consequence of Christ being in the tomb, the Apostle Paul says, verse 18, take a look at it, is that those who have fallen asleep, that's a euphemism in the New Testament for died. Those who have died as Christians, as believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, he says they have perished. They have perished if he is still in the ground. Just like all the rest of the unbelievers. What does it mean to perish? Biblically, the word perish refers to that which happens after our physical death. See, to die or to perish doesn't mean that a person ceases to exist. No one once born ever ceases to exist. At the moment of physical death, their body, their flesh and blood, right, the stuff we tend to think about, is separated from their soul. That is the real them. But their soul continues on. It is not destroyed. It continues. It is separated from the physical body. And their soul then lives on in either conscious happiness and joy or conscious torment and agony. Until the great day of resurrection when all will receive a new body. Body and soul reunited. For those who by faith in Jesus Christ are His They are a body suited to live forever with God in communion again. For those who have refused Him, it is a body suited for eternal torment in the lake of fire. So to perish doesn't mean to pass out of existence. So what does He mean? When He says that those who have died in Christ have perished, What he's saying is that if Jesus is still in the tomb, then those Christians who have died have nothing to hope for. They are still facing the judgment along with everyone else. Why? Verse 17. Because they are still in their sins. See, these are related consequences. If Christ has been raised and your sin has been atoned for, therefore, when you die, you will pass into the presence of God, into a fellowship, a communion, a relationship, a love relationship that will continue on forever. If you refuse Him in this life, when the day comes that your body and soul is separated in death, you will from that point forward suffer Eternal torment. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever should believe in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And that takes us in verse 19 to our third contrast. Our third contrast. Guilt versus forgiveness. Separation versus communion. Our third contrast, futility versus meaning. Verse 19. Futility versus meaning. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, then we are of all men most to be pitied. Paul says that if Jesus is still in the tomb, your worthless faith leaves you still in your sin. 
you are the most pitiable person on the planet. You are the most pitiable person on the planet. In fact, if you let your eyes drop down to verse 32, he says there, if Jesus is still in the tomb, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If Jesus is still dead, then we might as well grab all the gusto we can. It's like the bumper sticker, right? He who has the most toys in the end wins, right? Jesus is still in the tomb. That's the logical way to live your life. If Jesus is still in the tomb, get everything you can now because tomorrow you may die. But there are many who don't live their lives that way. There are many who have suffered for Jesus Christ through the centuries. There are many who have followed a life of devotion and sacrifice. It would be a stupid thing to do. It would be a futile way to live if Christ is still in the tomb. Chapter 1, verse 18 of this very same epistle, this same letter. Paul says that... uh, Those who follow Christ, those who proclaim a risen, crucified deliverer, are foolish, literally morons. That that's the way the intelligent people of the world, the elite people of the world, consider us. The idea of a crucified deliverer, it makes no sense to them. And you know what, beloved? If Christ had not been risen from the dead, they would be absolutely right. If Christ is still in the tomb, the most stupid thing you could do would become a Christian. No one knows how many hundreds of thousands of people have suffered through the centuries and died for the Christian faith. Rather than deny the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, they would give their own lives. What would you die for? What fact would you die for? It's a fact that the grass is green, isn't it? Would you die for that fact? If someone said to you, renounce your belief in the greenness of grass or I kill you now. I'd say what color you want it to be. What color do you like? No, you don't just die for a fact. You die for a reality of what it means to your immortal soul. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verses 25 and 26, Whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. For what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What will you trade for your soul, he says? What is it? Someone once wrote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And then a few years later, confirmed that testimony with his own blood. If Jesus is in the tomb, beloved, if He's still dead, I don't want to be a Christian. 
I can't think of a worse life to live. But if He be risen... If He be risen, then my sin has been forgiven. My guilt has been dealt with. My eternity is secure in Christ. I will spend eternity with my Creator in close communion with Him. And then my life here on earth is no longer futile, but it has meaning. It has meaning. I am certain of my future. I now live my life not for my glory, but for God's. I live my life not to serve myself, but to serve others. I measure my success not by the number of material possessions that I have accumulated, that I might build bigger barns or rent more storage buildings to put my yard sale junk in. I get to the end of my life And I have no regrets. For I have given my life for the central reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What are you giving your life for? What is it all about? How do you receive this gift of eternal life? How do I receive it? As our guests today, you either already have or after this service you will receive a gift certificate to our new bookstore. You're going to get this gift certificate and it has value. If you act in faith and go over to the bookstore and redeem it. If you do not... It is a piece of paper. Well, like the gift certificate, God has made available the gift of eternal life. And anyone who will act in faith and receive it, it has supreme and ultimate value. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10 and in verse 9, if you will confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. To confess Jesus as Lord is to turn from your independence and to humbly embrace Him as your sovereign Lord, to recognize that you are not God of your own life. You do not control your own destiny. You will submit yourself to His Lordship. To believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead is to sincerely believe that His death is your only means of reconciliation to God. It is the only atonement available. If you will, if you will confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, Beloved, this will be the greatest Easter imaginable. For the power that raised Christ from the dead will raise your soul too. You will know God in close and open fellowship. We're going to sing here in a moment to close this service. But I want to make invitation to you to respond to the message that you have heard.
Not to walk out of here this morning and blow it off, ignore it. Over here, my left, there's a cross you can see and there's a door next to it. It says prayer room. It's a place where you can go if you want to be alone this morning and to pray, to talk to God. Or maybe you have a spiritual need that you would like someone here to pray for you for. There will also be some folks standing over near that cross who will be available to answer any questions that you might have. Beloved, you're not here by accident. You are here by appointment, divine appointment. Today is the day of salvation. If you will but entrust yourself to Christ. Let's pray. Our Father God, we rejoice in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We rejoice because it is your divine stamp of approval upon his earthly life. It is our certainty to know that all that he said he has brought to pass. That he did not die like any one of us for his own sin. That death could not keep him bound for his life was an innocent life and his power is the power of creation he burst the bonds of death he has been raised and he grants life now to all who will receive him by faith our father we celebrate his resurrection we cling to Him as our only hope. We pray that those who do not know Him today will by faith embrace Him, believe, and trust themselves to Him. For His name's sake and His honor and glory. Amen.